We'll be in number 16. So you can open up to number 16. By the way, feel free always to read to read ahead. Just to kind of get a sense maybe of where we're going. If, you, uh, if you're following along, it's not hard to do. Because uh, we stay in a pretty consistent order here. And uh, Joe was just saying he had, he had taken a look at number 16 and it's just... We're just amazed at, once again, the heart of Israel and, and how these people respond and react to God. And uh, there's an awful lot here. We're going to start in number 16. We're going to end in the book of Jude because there's a, a very interesting connection there. But we're just going to kind of walk our way through this chapter and look at some things. The children of Israel right now are still bemid bar. The Midbar in the Hebrew meaning in the wilderness. They're still in the wilderness. There are those who say the book of Numbers is called the Midbar in the wilderness because it's all about the wilderness wanderings of the people and how they react to the Lord and what they do and how they blow it time and time again. What's great about it is we can find some comfort in knowing that we're not the only ones that fail time and time again and fall flat on our faces and find ourselves in moments of, of outright rebellion. You guys may remember back in, in chapter 14 that we watched as their faith failed and they freaked out and they fell apart. Straight Fs. And uh, we're still, when confronted with their failure, they decide, okay, we admit our failure and now we're going to forge ahead. And so often that's what we do. It, it's almost in response or reaction to messing up. We decide we're just going to plow ahead. We're going to make it right. And that's not what the Lord wants either. He didn't want the people to plow ahead, to head on in. And they got flattened by the Amalekites and by the Canaanites. They got completely wiped out. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. And I'm using F's here to make a point that their faith failed. They freaked out. They fell apart. They got flattened. It's straight F's. They're not doing well. But the Lord, 2 Timothy 2.13, is faithful. Even when we're faithless, Paul said, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And in Numbers 15, we saw last week, He turns right around after their major failure at Kadesh, and the first thing out of His mouth is, When you enter the land. Oh, you blew it. You're not going in now. It's going to be 40 years of wandering, Israelites. But, when you enter the land, God is faithful. You're going to go in. There will be a remnant of Israel at that point. It would be all those aged 19 and under who 40 years later then would have the faith to enter the land that God required of the people. But Numbers chapter 15 verse 41, he ended that chapter saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. Notice those four words, to be your God. Why did God rescue the Israelites? To rescue them? Just to give them a land? No, it was to be their God. Why does He save you and me? It's to be our God. That's His great desire. He wants to be our God. It's not about heaven, though heaven will be wonderful. It's not about an eternity of salvation. Wonderful though that is, it is about relationship. He wants to be our God. And you might think after all this, surely the people will buckle down. And surely they'll settle in and they'll accept the lordship of Jehovah and the leadership of his servant Moses? Surely not. Deuteronomy 9.7 Moses looking back 
prior, just, just before now they're, they're going into the land, all of Deuteronomy, I've mentioned before, when we get there, it's all one long sermon of Moses, much of it historical, looking back at what happened. And in chapter 9, verse 7 of Deuteronomy, he says, From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Verse 23 of Deuteronomy 9, he goes on and says, When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice, and I submit to you that it goes hand in hand. You believe in him and you listen to his voice. That's faith, the two together. It's not just believing, it's believing and listening. That's faith in action. And Moses says, you have, I love this, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. I said that to my kids before. As long as I've known you, you know. And that's what Moses is saying. You have not, why, I, there isn't a single day in my history with you Israelites that you have not, in some way, shape, or form, rebelled. You're a rebellious people. Stephen would later in Acts chapter 7 refer to them as stiff-necked, arrogant, rebellious. They want to do their own thing. And we can relate to that because, gang, that is the issue of the human heart. That is where sin flows from. That is, you could call it the fuel of the sin nature. Rebellion. It's what drives us to want to walk away. It's what drives us to sin when we do sin. It's what keeps people from the Lord who at this point don't know the Lord. It's that sinful nature that is driven by rebellion. And God says in Isaiah 48, verse 8, You have not heard, you have not known. Even from long ago your ear has not been opened, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. Now God's talking to Israel, but he might as well be talking to me. He might as well be talking to all of us. You have been a rebel from birth. Rebels without a clue. And he goes on and says, For the sake of my name I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. There's only one real reason, gang, why the earth wasn't just flattened, hasn't been flattened since long ago. God delays his wrath for the sake of his name. For his praise he restrains it. Why? Because he is a God of love. He has a passionate desire to overcome our rebellion that we might be saved and be with us so that He could be our God. And this relates to all of us. I, I quoted this on Sunday morning. I want to reread it tonight and, and let you really listen to what he's saying. Sometimes you can fly by a quote and, and think, oh, that was interesting, but I didn't quite get that. Listen closely to this. David Barron, in his book, Israel in the Plan of God, said the following, and it's, it's profound. Not only does Jewish history prove the fact that man cannot, by his own searching, find God, that's the first thing Jewish history shows us. But it also teaches that apart from divine grace and power, man is incapable of retaining the knowledge of the true and living God, even after it has been divinely communicated to him. And I said Sunday, there's only one reason why we are absolute rebels even now, even after hearing about God. is because the Holy Spirit has come into us and empowers us to follow him. You remove the Holy Spirit from any one of us, and guess what? We would not retain the knowledge of God. We would immediately head right back into rebellion. Two things that Barron's saying here, specifically he says, man by his own searching cannot find God, which flies right into the face of the whole seeker-driven movement. If this is true, 
And consider this. If man on his own cannot find God, then guess what? No amount of church planning or programming can attract people to the Lord. Only the Spirit of the living God. That God draws people to Himself. And I know I've, I've, I've kind of picked on the seeker-sensitive mentality quite a bit lately. And I'm not trying to be picky. But gang, Jesus gives us a radical concept that is absolutely biblical. Listen to it in His words, John 6.44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Does it get any clearer than that? You are here tonight, not by your own choosing, at least at the very outset, you're here because God has drawn you to Him. You're here because in the midst of your sin, Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of my transgression, at the worst of my rebellion, God started going, come here, come on. It's like me trying to get Reggie into his pen when we're leaving the house. He knows. He knows he's going to get stuck there. And now it's gotten to the point where even when I want to get Reggie to get in the car, he has to go through the laundry room, which is where we pin him up. And if the fence is set aside and the laundry room's wide open and the door's open and the car's running, I'm like, come on, Reg, let's go for a car ride. And he loves car rides. He still won't go. He gets up on the back of the couch and perches and just watches. You going to trick me? He knows me well. But I have to attract him, entice him. Sometimes I have to get a biscuit just to get him into the car. God draws us. God attracts us. God entices us. It is His Holy Spirit. And think back to when you were saved. And I'm assuming that you have all had that moment of salvation, that, that place where you came to acceptance of the Lord. Think about that. Where were you? What were you doing? What in the world made you think that going to church would be a good idea? In a world where it's just not. Why? Because God was drawing you. Jesus said it was written in the prophets. They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So man by his own searching cannot find God. So you say, so I guess we're just not to be evangelical. No, no, because you may be the exact person that God uses by his spirit and by his power to draw someone to him. You are a part of the process. We are connected here. God does want to work through us. And it's a blast when He does. Those of you who have brought someone to the Lord, you know that. What a rush to, to, to realize His Holy Spirit gave you the right words at the right time to draw a person into a fellowship and suddenly now they're following the Lord and you're just going like, wow, that's cool. That's how God works. Man, by his own searching, cannot find God. It's only by the power of the Spirit that we find Him. And secondly, what Barron says is man apart from divine grace and power cannot keep God. So even after we found Him, if it weren't for His grace, if it weren't for His Spirit, we could not retain Him. We couldn't hold on to Him. It's because He holds on to us. All the power is with Him. All of it. Now, does that make you look at grace a little differently? How overwhelming is it that God not only draws us, but keeps us? The people of Israel in their relentless rebellion teach us this absolute spiritual truth. We see time and time again in their journeys, in the wilderness, and they're heading toward the promised land, and even after they're in the land, over and over and over, they go after idol worship. And Joel reads number 16 and says, What? I can't believe what I'm seeing. They're going to do it again. They're about to rebel again. Why? Because man doesn't have the capability of retaining the knowledge of God in and of himself. We have to have his spirit to do that. Jesus put it this way. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
You've got to be born again. He says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that's what we all were before we came to Jesus, just flesh. But, he says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Paul says, Philippians 2.13, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? That's wonderful. And yet we, and we're going to look at this in a few minutes, we, like Paul, tend to kick against And whenever even those of us who are followers of Christ and spirit-filled people, when we begin to kick against the Lord in in our overt rebellion, you know what that is? That's the sin nature battling the spiritual nature both inside of us. But thanks to God and praise Him that His Spirit is greater and more powerful and can continue to lead us on. Gang, the story of human rebellion, which we see in Israel, is wonderfully encompassed by the greater and grander story of divine redemption. I'm a rebel, but God is a redeemer. And praise God that He is. It is by His power that I am redeemed. Well, let's pray and we're going to get into number 16. Father, show us through the rebellion of of this people our own rebellion. In fact, Father, I pray that as we study tonight, You would be cleaning us out. That You would look into our hearts and see if there is a way in us that is rebellious. Cause us, Father, to look at our own lives. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see the rebellion. I pray that you would help us to see and know, Father, those areas that we are kicking against you. Fighting for our own rights and our place and our privileges as if we earned anything. God, show us these things. And when it's all said and done tonight, Father, show us your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, and the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. They took action. Who is this Korah? Before we get any further, gang, Korah is the son of Izhar. That's important to note because Exodus chapter 6 verse 18 tells us who Izhar is. Izhar is Amram's brother. Amram had some sons, namely Moses and Aaron. Therefore, Korah is Moses' first cousin. There is family relationship here. And we need to note these things because it is often in families that things go on in the scriptures. In fact, and this is another for study for another time, but did you know it's quite likely that James and John were cousins of Jesus? They weren't just fishermen that he went and found somewhere. They were his cousins. There was a family relationship there. We'll talk about that another time and how we come to that point. But it's interesting how this goes on. And right here we need to know that Korah is Moses' first cousin because what we're dealing with, and we'll see, this whole thing sparked off in this chapter, this chapter on rebellion, is it begins in the family. It begins with family jealousy, family envy, just as it did back in chapter 12 with Miriam and Aaron toward Moses. Only this time, Aaron is on the receiving end. 
Aaron is alongside Moses and he's now spoken ill of and he's getting a taste somewhat of his own medicine. Verse 2 going on, it says, These men, Korah and, and the sons of Kohath and Levi and Dathan and Abiram and, and On and the sons of Reuben, they all took action. What kind of action? It says, verse 2, They rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown, Men of renown. Oh, these were the bigwigs. These were the hotshots. These were the ones that the rest of the assembly looked at and said, they're the guys to follow. These guys, yeah, because they, they're they the talented ones. They're renowned. What, for what reason? I don't know. But they're looked at by the rest of Israel as the hotshots. And so these guys now gather around this other small group, and together they rise up before Moses. Verse 3 says, They assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and said to them, You have gone far enough. For all the congregation, listen to this, this is ridiculous. All the congregation are holy, every one of them. Really? And the Lord is in, your, is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You've gone far enough. In other words, it's time for a change at the top. We need an election. We need a new president. Have you noticed about every three years or so in America that tends to come up? It really doesn't matter who the president is. Someone is saying, we need a change. There's no consistency. We are, we're fickle people. And this absolutely cracks me up that not only are they looking for a change, but they say everyone in the congregation is holy. This is a holy people. What makes you better than we are? How dare you stand up in front of us and act all exalted and righteous like you're God's man. Look at this congregation of people. Don't they look good? <laughs> I laugh when I think about it. That's like us saying the same thing. Don't we look good? Lord, we're holy. Lord, you are blessed to be in our presence today. You know? What does the Bible tell us about the human condition? What do we know to be true about ourselves? Romans 3.10 As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are, are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Feel good about yourself? You know, we've got to have that understanding of our sin nature if we're ever going to grasp grace. If we're ever going to exalt in grace, not exalt, different word, to exalt is to lift yourself up, to exalt is to jump up into what God is already doing. If we are ever going to really grasp grace and go, yes, thank you Jesus, hallelujah, I'm a saved person, it begins by recognizing there's not one righteous. Our throats are open graves. Our mouths full of cursing and bitterness. And when people ask, by the way, why is there pain? If there's a God, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why is there tragedy and turmoil? I would suggest you take them right to Romans chapter 3. This is why there's pain and suffering in the world. Because there is not one righteous. Because we are sinners. And sinners wreak havoc. And we're a whole world full of them. No, the congregation is not holy. 
In fact, the very statement, look at us, we're holy, the Lord is in our midst, is a statement of absolute arrogance. Again, remember that the presence of sin in the world also makes the picture of the gospel that much more sweet. Romans 1.16, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. At any time, in any church, in any people group, someone stands up and claims that all the people are holy, they're not playing with a full deck. Alright? They have missed the reality, the truth. But you know what else is ridiculous? It's ridiculous for them to say that Moses was in this for himself. That Moses was exalting himself. That Moses was, it's time for a change at the top because you have gone far enough, Moses. This is all about you. You're just making it all about you. And that is such a falsehood when you look at the history of Moses. Think about when God called Moses. Remember back there, Exodus chapter 3? Moses, I want you to lead the people. And Moses says, huh? Not me, send someone else. I'm not your guy. In fact, the first words out of Moses' mouth, Exodus 3.11, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I'm not your man. Who am I? And God's response is fantastic. Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. In other words, Moses, when you ask who am I, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. And I can use anybody, but Moses fought against it. Moses said, hey, I'm not a good speaker, Lord. I stutter. I, 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 can't, I, 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 I can't bring this message to the people. I can't. So God says, no problem. I'll send Aaron to speak for you, but you're my man. Oh, no, Lord, there's got to be someone else. And for an entire chapter, and if you read the chapter, Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, Moses just kicks against this call. It's not me. I am not equipped for this, Lord. God just keeps saying, hey, I am that I am. It's about me. But Moses is this man of incredible humility. He's not who they say he is. In fact, and we said this just recently, he is one of two people in the entire Bible referred to as, characterized as, humble. Moses and Jesus. And that's great company to be in. Moses was not in this for himself. In fact, he got saddled with something that we see several times. He looks at the Lord and says, Lord, why me? <laughs> why these people? Get somebody else. I'm, I can't stand this. Well, verse 4 goes on. And look exactly, and this is proof positive of where Moses' heart was. Look what he does. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Remember what we said recently? Flat nose Moses. That's how you're going to know him in heaven. He's the one with a flat face because he's always falling on his face. His response to everything is, Moses, you're a jerk. I'm going to go pray about that. Down he goes. Moses, you're exalting yourself. Excuse me while I pray. Moses, why do you think you're so important? i got to go pray. And that's how he responds to everything. He is on his face before the Lord. He responds this way. It's the same thing he did when he was accused by Miriam and Aaron. And I love this about Moses because he doesn't give response right away. I would. Someone comes against me, I am ready with a defense. The first thing out of me, excuse me? Well, let me explain to you my actions and maybe you can see why you're an idiot for thinking that I am. You know? But Moses, no. Moses says nothing. He goes down. He prays. And then when he turns around and responds, you know it's of the Spirit. You know it's God led. It's kind of like Jesus. You remember, remember the scene when, when Jesus went to the temple that last week of his life. And it's fascinating. Only one of the gospel writers tells us this. It's fascinating. He goes into the temple and he looks around. He sees all the money changers. He sees everybody in there. He sees all the sin that's taking place. Driving Gentiles away by the whole look of things. 
And the Bible tells us he went home. He slept on it at night. And it was the next morning that he comes into the temple and goes on what we might consider a rampage, but it wasn't out of emotional fury. It was spirit-led. He was after a night of prayerful consideration. What do I do with this situation? And when he comes back to the temple the next day, he is completely righteous in his anger. That's a great thing for us to pay attention to. The best thing I can do when I'm under attack, personally, is fall on my face. Pray first, then respond. What do you do when you're accused? When you're criticized? Do you face off? with your accuser or you go on your face before the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5.44 pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven and by the way a little side note on praying for someone who persecutes you prayer is as much for you as it is for the persecutor someone's coming after you and you take the time to pray The Lord often reveals your own blind spots, my own blind spots, and helps me to see that sometimes the persecutor actually has a point. Although not in this story, they didn't have a point with Moses. It wasn't his fault. He wasn't exalting himself. Verse 5, after he fell on his face, it says, And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. How did he know that? Well, because he had been on his face before the Lord. He had heard from the Lord. So now he's telling them what the Lord had told him. Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is His and who is holy and will bring Him near to Himself. Even the one whom He will choose, He will bring near to Himself. Do this, he says. Take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company. You remember what a censer is? It's a fire pan. It's a pan used for lighting and and, uh, giving out incense. It was used by the priests in the holy place. They would use these censers, these fire pans, and they would fill it with incense and light it, and that's where they would kind of shake up the incense to be burned, okay? So he says, do this. Get, get some of these. Get censers for yourselves, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. And now Moses starts to get a little hot. In fact, he says the same thing that they just said. Look up in verse 3. What's the first words out of their mouth? You've gone far enough, Moses. And Moses says, no, you have gone far enough. You have just pushed it to the limit, sons of Levi. By the way, we'll let the plane pass here. By the way, notice who it is that Korah is a part of. Notice who is rising up. It's the sons of Levi, the one tribe of all the tribes of Israel that already had been elevated to the priesthood. These are not just the common people of Israel. This is the priesthood who is rising up here. And then Moses said to Korah, verse 8, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? Are you seeking for the priesthood also? Are you seeking now for the position of Aaron? You guys want to be high priest too? You already get to camp closer than anybody else to the tabernacle. You already serve the Lord closer than anybody else in Israel. And now you want to be high priest as well? What's going on? Don't 
you understand, he's saying, how privileged and blessed you already are. Yet in spite of that, you're, you're rising up, you're rebelling. Verse 11. Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. This is not about Moses. It's not about Aaron. You guys are rising up against the Lord, he says. But as for Aaron, and now he sticks up for his brother, who is he that you grumble against him? In other words, back off my brother. He's done nothing wrong here. You have a problem? It's not with him. It's not with me. (laughs) It's with the Lord. And listen, gang, this is an absolute key to handling criticism in your life. To dealing with personal attacks when someone comes against you, disparaging comments, negative things said about you, Moses would respond, Hey, you're not coming against me. You're coming against the Lord. When you're living for, acting for Jesus, when He is your primary focus, and someone persecutes you, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And what I love about this, way back in Genesis 15:1, Abraham heard something from God that God would repeat, and I believe is for you and for me. God said to Abraham, Fear not. I am thy shield. I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Psalm 3 verse 1 says, Oh Lord, how my adversaries have have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, There's no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, he says, are a shield about me. You are my glory. You're the one who lifts my head. My mother-in-law, Sharon, um, and she's not here, so we'll talk about her just for a minute. She, she is, defends me to the hilt. In fact, I just want to give you a warning. If you have anything negative to say about me in this fellowship, say it to one of the elders. They'll listen. Say it to somebody else. Not that they have negative. You know what I'm saying. Don't say it to Sharon because she is a lioness. She is. She will defend. Wow, you just don't know what things are like over the house there. You just don't know what's going on for Rick. And I, you know, she will go off on you. So if you don't want, if you want to complain about me, that's fine. But don't do it to her because she will defend to the hill. And just the other day, we were standing in the house talking about this. And she said, yeah, someone said something the other day. And I was, oh, I just got, my back just bristled and I got so mad. I thought it was kind of gross that her back bristled. But anyway, <laughs> I got so mad and I just said, you just don't understand. And I started defending you. And, and at first I was like, yeah, all right, go get them. <laughs> Attack, you know, sick them, Sharon. But I thought about it. And I went and I sat down in my office. And it just so happens I was studying this and I saw what Moses said, that you're, you're, you know, you're not grumbling against me, you're grumbling against the Lord. And Psalm 3, you, O Lord, are my shield. And I had to go back to Sharon and go, when someone complains, I just need you to remember that God is my shield. He's the shield. And you don't have to be. Now, I'm not placing any bets on this. She will probably still defend me. Just so you know. Let's move on. Verse 12. God is my shield. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. Talk to the hand. (laughs) They blew him off. They said, we're not listening to you. Who are you to tell us what to do? They go on, and this just cracks me up. It gets even more ridiculous in their mentality. Verse 13, Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? What are they talking about? Egypt? Egypt was a land flowing with milk and honey? 
Last time they talked about it, it was the leeks and the onions that they missed. Okay? A little different than milk and honey. You brought us out of the land of milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us. Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. They say, would you put out the eyes of these men? But they themselves are the ones who are blind. They have no idea even what they're saying here. It is completely ridiculous. And you can jot this down. You can take this one to the bank. Rebellion causes retinal failure. You can't see. Rebellion brings about blindness. Anytime a person is in a place of rebellion, they are not seeing things clearly. As is the case with these people. And Paul puts a great point on this. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Rebellion causes blindness. And it's so in my life. When I'm in a place of rebellion and I'm not doing what the Lord wants me to do, guess what? I'm also not seeing where the Lord wants me to go. I'm not comprehending what the Lord has in mind for me when I'm in that place of rebellion. When I'm saying, God, I want to do it my way. He says, great, you're not seeing what I have for you. You're blinded to it. Paul says that's what the God of this world does. He blinds the minds of those who do not believe. And by the way, the unbelieving is not just speaking of people who are not Christians. The unbelieving is speaking of anyone who is in a moment of unbelief, and that can be me, and that can be you. When I step outside of faith and I refuse to believe that God has a plan in place for me, and I reject God's plan, the God of this world blinds my mind. It's the ability that Satan has to take unbelief and turn it into deceit. It's how he functions. Satan being the God of this world. And you know what's really interesting about Satan? What he does when he blinds the minds of those who do not believe is the same thing that was his problem. He takes us into that same place. He invites people to go where he went. Where's that? Envy. Jealousy. Rebellion. Isaiah 14, 13 says that Satan said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And is it any wonder that Satan invites people to go down that exact same path? That's what he did with Eve. You want to be like God? You want to raise yourself up and be godly, Eve? All you got to do is take a bite. Now, Adam wasn't quite so spiritually minded. He said this before. He was just looking at a naked woman offering him fruit, and so he responded, as would any man. But again, I digress. Verse 15. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, though they're acting like donkeys. I added that myself. Nor have I done any harm to any of them. Verse 16, Moses said to Korah, You and all your company company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you 
and they along with Aaron. And each of you take his fire pan and put incense in it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 fire pans. Also you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Uh-oh, dad's home. <laughs> Verse 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. It's another one of those great moments where God indicates to Moses and Aaron that he's going to do something and I think primarily to see how Moses and Aaron will respond. To give Moses and Aaron opportunity to intercede. We know from further on down in the scriptures God has always purposed to keep a remnant of Israel and there was no way in any of these cases that he was going to completely wipe them off the map. But he said so a couple of times to Aaron and to Moses. Why? To give Aaron and Moses opportunity again to intercede. He does the same with us. Giving us opportunity to step, to stand into the gap and intercede for people who are in that moment lost. And so he says, separate yourselves, I will consume them instantly. But look at what they do and it's great. They fell on their faces. Back to prayer. And they said, Oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh, which is, by the way, an interesting phrase, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Now this phrase again, you are the God of the spirits of all flesh. It's an interesting phrase, and I think Moses is on to something here. Now listen, follow along. These guys showed up with their fire pans, which means they must have thought they were right. They actually showed up. They actually were so blinded in their rebellion that they thought they might have a shot here, or they never would have shown up. Because the last couple of guys who had fire pans and offered up strange fire, do you remember what happened to them? Nadab and Abihu, they got fired from the ministry, literally, blown away, consumed. And so here's Korah and Dathan and Abiram and On and all these other guys and the 250 and they show up with their censers ready to prove their point. Just like the Apostle Paul. Paul thought he was right. Paul was absolutely convinced. In fact, turn over to Acts chapter 26 just quickly here. Acts 26. Acts 26 and verse 9. Paul was absolutely convinced that he was functioning in a role that God had called him to. He was so sure of himself, so sincere in his belief that what he needed to do was to take out the Christians. In verse 9, he says, and he's at this point giving a fantastic defense for himself. He says, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were be, being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. By the way, at this point, Paul isn't even a seeker. 
Okay, all he's doing is seeking to destroy. And he's pursuing. And now we see God's absolute grace. It says, At midday, O king, Paul speaking, I saw on the way to Damascus. Sorry, I skipped uh, verse 12. While so engaged, I was journeying to, to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying there with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, which is interesting, I think Paul is pointing out, God always comes to us where we are. Paul was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew among Hebrews, and this is the language that Jesus spoke to him. Even though the language that Jesus spoke when he was on earth was Aramaic, here he's speaking to Paul in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says this, and it's the only time we see Paul mention this, it's wonderful. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Kick against the goats. What in the world is that? I'll tell you in a minute. Then I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up. Stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. To appoint you, in holy irony here, a minister. And a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. What does that mean? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The word goads there is the Greek word kentron. Kentron, K-E-N-T-R-O-N. And it literally is a pointed stick used to drive animals. In other words, it's a cattle prod. It's a cattle prod. And it speaks, in this case, of literally a divine impulse or urging. What this tells us is that while Paul was on the road to Damascus, actually prior to that, he had had begun to have pangs of guilt. He had begun to struggle with what he was doing. He was kicking against the very driving, the divine impulse that God was using on Paul. God is trying to drive Paul this way and he's kicking against it. I'm not going to go that way. Because I'm right. I know I'm right. I'm 100% right. The Holy Spirit was prodding. Paul is kicking. And that, going back to Numbers 16, is exactly what's going on with Korah and company. They thought they were right. But in reality, they were kicking against the God of the spirits of all flesh. The God of the spirits of all flesh. It's trying to lead them, but they're kicking against them. We're not going to go that way. We're going to do our thing. Psalm 75, verse 4 illuminates this beautifully it says I said to the boastful do not boast and to the wicked do not lift up the horn the horn speaking of authority do not lift up your horn on high and do not speak with insolent pride for not from the east nor from the west nor from the desert comes promotion but God is the judge he puts down one and he promotes another Moses was in the place he was in because God put him there. Period. Other people are in other places because God puts us there. Period. Had a great meeting with a guy earlier this week. A man whose family, they're checking out some different churches. And, and we had lunch together and we were sitting talking. And he, he said something that I thought was wonderful. He said, you know, it's a military guy. He's in the Navy. And he said, man, I, I have been feeling for a long time. I've got the sword in my hand and I want to go out and fight the battle. 
And God keeps telling me that He wants me to go peel potatoes. I don't want to peel potatoes. I want to fight the battle. But you know, it's the Lord who exalts and puts down. It's the Lord who places us where He does. Moses was where he was because God wanted him to be there. But these guys, Korah and company, they thought they were so absolutely right. And here's the great thing. When we understand this position of the Lord in our lives, we can relax. We can relax. We don't have to kick against the goats. Kick against the divine impulses, the divine urging. God's got a handle on my life. God raises up. God puts down. I don't have to. I don't have to worry about who's in what position in my church fellowship. I don't have to concern myself with who got the promotion at work that I thought I should have gotten. Guess what? If the Lord wants you to have the promotion, He'll get it. If He wants you to be in a certain place, He'll be there. He's going to take care of it. Don't kick against the goads. Just follow the Spirit. Listen to the divine leading. All I need to do in my life is entrust my life to the Lord. Entrust it to Him. He is the God of the spirits of all flesh. Verse 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, and it starts to heat up here, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And then Moses arose, and he went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel following him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in their sin." And gang, you know there's a time when we're attempting to be loving Christians, and I've seen it over and over and over, that we get swept away in the sin of others. We go to listen to someone who's got a problem, or a beef, or a frustration. And as we listen, we get caught up in that gossip. We go to serve somebody who is no longer even attending a church because they're so angry with the Lord and we find ourselves getting pulled down subtly and stealthily and we may even find ourselves ending up in their sin and Paul says, don't be deceived. You know the verse, bad company corrupts good morals. This is a spiritual truth. And if I'm hanging out with those who like Korah, and Dathan and company, if I'm hanging out with guys like this who are standing in rebellion, it's dangerous because I may get swept away. Moses says, don't even touch anything that belongs to them. You'll be swept away in all of their sin. Get back. Move away. Verse 27. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out, and you, you, can, you can just sense the arrogance. They came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And it doesn't say this, but I picture them standing there with their arms crossed just going, bring it on. Bring it on, Moses. What's going to happen? Good. Tell the people to get back. Get away. We're in no danger here. Moses then says, verse 28, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. This is not my doing, which is a great attitude to have, both positively and negatively. If things are hard, that you're following the Lord, it's not of your doing. If things are going great, fantastic, wonderful things are happening, the Spirit's really moving in your life, it's still not of your doing. It's the Lord. And he says in verse 29, If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. 
Look at the contrast here. You've got Korah, Datham, and Byram, armed smugly crossed, standing in the doorway of their tents, and Moses saying, this isn't my doing. They're saying, bring it on. And he's saying, it's not about me. It's just not about me. What is not your doing, Moses? His entire ministry bringing the people out of Egypt, leading them through the desert, functioning with authority. He never claims that right for himself. He never stands up and says, this is who I am and you need to follow me because look at what I've done for you. He always says, it's not about me. This is the doing of the Lord. This is what the Lord has done. I'm just being used by Him. I've just accepted the role that He's called me to. And that is the humble heart of a godly leader who can say, it's not me, it's Him. It's not my church. It's not my people. It's not my authority, my gifts, my talents, my ability, or my power. It is all Him at work in me. That's where Moses is at. Because, gang, the moment I make it about me, and listen to this, the moment I start to think that anything I accomplish in my spiritual life is about me, I am in danger of the pit. Watch what happens, verse 29, verse 30. He says, But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth, and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And gang, this is always the end result of rebellion. They will descend alive into Sheol. And practically, what does that mean? It means the more I rebel, the more my life is spent in the pits. The more I I can't live and function and do what God is. I'm alive, but I'm in the pit. I'm in despair. I've got no direction. I need to be lifted out. And only can I be lifted out by the power of Jesus. More often than not, people with self-agendas and rebellious hearts either flame out completely or they find themselves in the pit. But it's interesting, they never last. They never last in the kingdom. They never continue to function for the Lord. They tend to fade away. That's the end result of rebellion and arrogance. The difference for one who walks under the the authority of the Lord is they don't fade away. They produce fruit. And Jesus said it this way. He said, I'm the vine, John 15, 5. You're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And I ask you this question. Can you name any of the 250 men of renown? Obviously, their renown has not lasted because we don't even know who they are. All lumped together in one group, the men of renown. They had a name for themselves then. They don't anymore. Verse 31 is just awesome. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. That's absolutely frightening that God would do this. Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and all their families, wives, children, material goods, tents, everything they had 
went straight down. The earth opened up, swallowed them, and closed over them. And they were gone. And you might read that and go, why are the children included? Why the innocent babes in the tent of Dathan? Why these little kids who did nothing wrong themselves? Well, first of all, no one is innocent. No, not one. No one's innocent. We have this idea that children are these innocent little angelic cherubs, and they're not. If you have kids, if you've ever hung around kids, if you've ever babysat a child, you know they can be angelic, but they can also be little demons. They are not innocent. But that's not what's going on here. Gang, this involves the understanding, which we talked about Sunday, of God's perfect righteousness. You come to a passage like this and you see the entire families drop down, buried, kids and all. And you say, God, how can you do this? You have to begin from the place of His mercy and His righteousness. From that place He says, okay, I'm going to start by assuming God is right. Assuming that He knows what He's doing. Assuming that His justice is perfect. I may not always understand, but I can always know that in the balance of justice and mercy, God is perfect. And from that place, I can begin to work through what's going on here. We know both biblically and experientially that the sins of the Father, the Bible tells us this, the sins of the Father are often passed on to the children, and the children's children, and the children's children. That this is what sin does, that it's given from one generation to the next. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. And let me pause and say, are you guys hot? Can we someone turn that cranking thing off because I'm getting... A little sleepy up here. (laughs) Listen to this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And some read that and say, oh, see, so God is going to judge the kids three, four generations down the line for what the fathers did? That's not fair. But that's not what it says. Listen carefully. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. God's saying, with each generation, I'm going to visit. I'm going to come see what's going on. But here's the reality. The iniquity of the father is going to be there on the kids. And it's going to be there on their kids. And will be there on their kids. And I guarantee this, look at any family line, look at any problem in a family line, be it alcoholism, be it child abuse, and I guarantee you can trace it back further and further. Which is why in our scientific field, scientists say, well, it's a biological problem. I don't buy it. It's not a biological problem, it's a sin problem. Then the sins of the father pass on to the child, who passes on to the child, who passes on to the child. And I'll tell you something about God's perfect justice and mercy. Nobody sins in a vacuum. Everything I do will always impact my family. When I sin, my wife and my children are affected. I cannot sin outside of that. I cannot stop off at the bar on my way home from work and get myself drunk and then come home and assume that it doesn't affect my family. It's just me. I'm just having a few with the boys. It has nothing to do with you, sweetheart. It has nothing to do with you, kids. But it does. There's no such thing as just sitting in my own little vacuum, my own little world, and it doesn't impact my family or even my friends or other people. It's as though when I sin that I plant a seed of that very behavior that my children's children's children may carry on. And there's only one thing that can crush that seed, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. 
without the blood of Jesus, generationally, things just continue on and on, which is why there is such rampant sin and pain and tragedy in the world. Because we bear the results of our father's, 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 father's sins passed right along to me, the father, and will be passed right on to my kids, if not for Jesus Christ in our family. Jesus alone can stop that. Which is why Exodus chapter 20 verse 6 says that God is showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, every generation God comes back and visits again and checks it out and offers grace and offers Jesus. And if someone in that generation would but accept Jesus, that generation is the one that turns the corner and is different. That's when the generational sin passed on and on and on gets broken. Well, verse 35. And so, I believe that's what's going on here, by the way. God's looking at the family of Dathan, and the sin and rebellion of Dathan is already planted so deeply in his entire family that the whole family has to go. Isn't she also tied into a separate Yeah, we don't know that yet. No. We don't know that until we get to the New Testament. Right. So you're saying, so the kids may have gone down and then gone to the paradise versus... Possible? You have a very compassionate heart, Stacey. <laughs> so wait a minute, is that my wife talking there? Yes, there, see, and which brings me right back to that same point. There is so much that we do not know. And we can only make judgments on what we do know. We know that this happened. We know that God judged. But we know that God is the perfect judge. And so we move on. Verse 35. Now the rest of the guys. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. So they all get completely fried. These men of renown. And you know, I, I think it's from time to time. I've thought this many times over the years. Wouldn't it be great if some major celebrity found Christ? And isn't it funny how in the Christian world we get so excited when a celebrity or a sports figure finds Jesus. Like, yes, now he's talking about Jesus too. Now we're going to have an impact on the world scene. Be careful because God doesn't have much use for men of renown. It's not the name of a man that matters. It's the name of God. I was at a, a meeting today of, you know what, the bird did it again. <laughs> he did right there. You want to see it? It's right there. Evil birds. He's still missing though. He's going to the left of the note, so we're all right. We should just do that right Okay. <laughs> Here, let me not lose this. This is important. It's never a name that sells Christ. It is the name of Christ that people need to hear. I was at this meeting of, of some guys today. Some pastors were all invited to come to this pizza lunch. And there's a group of men over in Anacortes who want to do a big evangelistic campaign. And so I went to this thing and I'm listening to them talk and, and someone said, now who are you going to get? Who's going to be like the main speaker? Oh, we want to get a, a, you know, a, a named guy. And I was sitting there going... Man, why don't we get just some podunk pastor from Anacortes to come speak? If he's speaking God's word, isn't that as powerful as it gets? And we see this time and time again that the word of God tends to move through those who are seemingly insignificant in the world because it's his power, it's his word that makes the change. It's not someone who has a name for themselves. And that's great news for us in our tiny little barn here on North Whitby. 
Because guess what? We are not people who have names for ourselves. That's not what brings the gospel to the world. It's people who would think, man, how could God possibly use me? And he does, and then he's glorified. Not the name of the person. And so these men of, the, of renown, they go down. Verse 36, i got to finish. Verse 36, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating. This is interesting. Take all these other censers that... These guys got burned up. They all started melting. Take all the stuff. Hammer them into sheets for a plating of the altar. Talk about the bronze altar here. Since they did present themselves before the Lord and they are holy. (laughs) The censers are holy. Not so much the men. Going on. They shall be for a sign to the sons of Israel. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers, these fire pans, which the men who were burned had offered. And they hammered them out as a plating for the altar. As a covering, literally a bronze covering here. As a reminder, verse 40, to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord so that he will not become like Korah and his company just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. So these fire pans that belong to the guys who were just fried now become a bronze covering for the altar a reminder for future generations but wait a minute something's amiss here and if we were in the middle of our study in Exodus several months ago we would understand this we'd see this right off the bat something's not right what were the censers for incense supposed to be made of? gold they were supposed to be gold The censers were of gold, not of bronze. These 250 men brought bronze censers, bronze fire pans, to offer up incense before the Lord. Not the prescribed gold. Why did they bring bronze? Probably because they spent all their gold on a certain calf incident several weeks before. They didn't have gold to make their censers. So they made bronze censers, which was not appropriate. It was not what God called the people to make. They had the wrong censers, brass, not gold. They, by the way, probably used the wrong incense, too. For the Lord prescribed that you take incense from the altar of incense to put into the censer, that it might be lifted up before the Lord. Where did they get their incense? Probably out of Egypt. Probably not made in the prescribed way by the priests. Wrong censers, wrong incense. They were the wrong men. They were not of the line of Aaron, so they shouldn't have been offering anything in the first place. And they lit the wrong fire. Where did the fire come from? The fire came from the altar. You're supposed to get the fire off the altar to put in with the incense to burn before the Lord. They thought they were right. They were completely wrong in every way. Now, we're going to finish, and you're not going to believe this. Verse 41. But on the next day... On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Unbelievable. Morons. (laughs) Were you not there yesterday when the ground opened up and ate them alive? Did you miss the burning? Can you no longer smell the charred flesh? Come on. They said, you're the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. Oh yeah, Moses was the one who opened the earth. Right, that was him. He's the one who caused the blaze to come right out of the you know, tabernacle and lit these guys up. 
Come on! It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Dad's home. Then then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. (laughs) This play is over and over and over. And what does Aaron and Moses do? What do they do? They fell on their faces. Personally, I just would have gotten away. Okay, Lord, take them out. They fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it and then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. This is a man of grace. Make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. So apparently, immediately, a plague did start up among the people and they were dropping like flies. It goes on and says that Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. (laughs) I would have walked. (laughs) For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living, which is exactly what Christians are called to do today. Take your stand between the dead and the living. Be a light that the dead might become the living in Christ Jesus. So that he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah. Verse 50, Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting for the plague had been checked. Turn to the book of Jude. We're almost done. Give me just a couple more minutes here. Book of Jude, last book, right before Revelation. Who were these 14,700 people who were killed, who died that day? They were those who were hanging around Korah's rebellion. They were those who were impacted and affected by the statements, by the, the preaching of Korah. They were hanging around, bad company, corrupting good morals. These folks were caught up. They weren't directly in Korah's rebellion, but they were checking it out. They were considering it. They were looky-loos, if you will, on the fringe of rebellion, right there watching what was taking place. And Proverbs 14.12 tells us, and we should all just know this, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. What does this story teach us? That rebellion, gang, is the path of destruction. It is at the heart of a problem which the Bible says will plague the church of the last days. Watch this. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. What's he saying? He said, I was sitting down to write a letter about salvation and grace. And as I began to write, I felt compelled. God was saying, no, you need to tell them to take a stand for truth. You need to tell them to contend earnestly, to be willing to battle for the faith which was handed down once for all. That phrase, once for all, it's important for any pagan or false religion that has popped up since the Bible was written. This gospel is once for all. This is it. 
contend for it, he says. For certain persons, verse 4, have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. In other words, God knew ahead who exactly it would be that would fall. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, which is exactly what the cults do today. Deny Jesus. Verse 5, it says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Who's that? It's faithless Israel. Faithless Israel. And then he goes on and says, And even angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Who's that? Fallen angels. Faithless Israel. Fallen angels. Verse 7. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. He's talking about fleshly Sodom. Three groups of people here, three examples. Faithless Israel, fallen angels, and fleshly Sodom. These three groups are a picture of something. They all share the same problem. It's rebellion leading to apostasy. What's apostasy? Apostasy is the word that literally means falling away from faith. Turning your back on God, rejecting Christ. But read on, verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Now verse 9 is going to freak you out, but it's interesting. He says, but Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What's going on there? Michael talking with the devil about the body of Moses? What is that? Come to the Revelation study Sunday night and I'll explain it to you. Verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. In other words, gang, and listen to this, gut reaction is not the healthiest guide for life. People say, follow your heart. Do what your heart says. Guess what? Your heart is flesh, and flesh deceives. You don't do what your heart says. You do what the Lord says. Well, how do I know? You check it by His Word. How do I know it's the Lord speaking to me and not me just leading out in my own direction? Check it against His Word. Ask Him to make it clear to you. Don't just follow your gut instincts. Instincts, gang, Jude compares to unreasoning animals. Animals have instinct. Reggie knows when it's time to go in the pen. His instinct tells him to rebel. And that's what animals do. They have instinct. Verse 11 goes on and says, Woe to them, watch this, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, who we'll read about in in coming chapters in the book of Numbers, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah. He comes up again. Here we are at the far end of Scripture, the other end of the Bible, and Korah comes up again. Why? As an example of the apostasy that will come into the church in the last days. You can count on it. You can see it. Look at the news. Look at what's happening in the church. Look at the broad-based acceptance of things like homosexuality, which we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah, was not something that pleased the Lord. 
not something that God would allow to continue. Look in the church and see what's happening and you understand some of what Jude is talking about. The letter of Jude, by the way, is like a red lantern of warning, a danger sign on a difficult road ahead. We'll skip down to verse 16. He says, these are the grumblers finding fault, following their own lusts. And by the way, lust doesn't necessarily have to be sexual or physical. Lust could just be a lust for power, a lust for position, a desire for a place of authority. They're the grumblers, finding fault, following their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. I've never seen that in a church. <laughs> but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly minded, devoid, watch this, devoid of the Spirit. Rebellion, gang, is the root of all apostasy. Rebellion, again, is the fuel that drives our sin nature. It's at the heart of all false religion. Rebellion is at the heart of false teaching. It's at the heart of faithless leadership. And so you might say, well, seeing this and understanding it, knowing our sin nature, looking at what happened with faithless Israel tonight, what do we do? How do we guard against it? As Jude says, how do we contend earnestly for the faith? I love how this chapter ends. He tells us exactly how to guard against it. He says, but you, beloved, I sent this verse out in an email today, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God and wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Four things he says. And you can check this back in verse 3. Stay in the word. Contend for the faith. Stay in the word. Verse 20 he says pray in the spirit. Verse 20 he also says relay his love. And finally he says wait for Jesus. And in these things... You will contend for the faith. In these things you will be kept by the Lord. And in these things you will see apostasy for what it is. And you will not be of the rebellion of Korah. Stay in the word. Pray in the spirit. Relay his love. Wait for Jesus. Let's finish with verse 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Father, give us strength in these days. May our minds be sharp and clear as we remain in Your Word. Father, may our senses be attuned to you as we pray in the Spirit. God, may we be people of great compassion as we relay your love to those around us. And may we always have our heads up, eyes wide open as we wait for your return. God, bless us as we study and follow you. And keep us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.